You know, one of the things that I've noticed as I've looked over the, the course of history, the, the history of humanity, is that so often um, those who make a remarkable difference in this world are, are really just ordinary people who have the courage to make simple decisions that go against the grain of what most people consider to be the norm. In other words, when you start looking over the, the course of human history, when you see these remarkable moments, these remarkable movements, when you trace them down to the root, at their very root, so often what you find is just some ordinary person who made a simple decision that cut against the grain of what was considered to be the norm. You know, we see this really all across our nation's history. You could find person after person that just had the courage to make a choice. You know, I, I think in particular uh, about Rosa Parks. You know, we all know who Rosa Parks is, right? And she was just an ordinary woman that one day made a courageous decision to cut against the grain of what society said was normal and she refused to give up a seat on the bus and she kicked off this movement that radically changed the cultural landscape of our city, right? You know, this week I was talking to my wife um, about, about this kind of idea and she was telling me about this couple that she recently learned about that I'd never heard of by the name of William and Catherine Booth. Some of you may know who they are because you're smarter than me and that's cool, but I'm gonna tell you about them anyways just in case you don't know. William and Catherine Booth were this couple that lived in the late 1800s in England. And uh, William Booth, at, 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 at different times in his life, served as a minister or a pastor in the Methodist Church in England. And for whatever reason, he, his service in the established church just, it didn't sit well. He could tell it wasn't what God had for him. And so he took a stab at being an itinerant preacher. An itinerant preacher is someone who travels around and preaches wherever they'll let him. And so William Booth, he preached like everywhere from bars uh, to haylofts and barns, to people's backyards, on the street corner. He would just preach. And in 1865, he, they found themselves, William and Catherine, they found themselves living in London, specifically in East London. And uh, East London in the 1860s was not the most popular place to land. In fact, I didn't know anything about East London until I started reading on the booths after my wife told me about this. And this is what one writer said about East London in the 1860s. They said, it was a squalid labyrinth with half a million people, 290 people per acre. Can you imagine that? 290 people per acre in a city. It said every fifth house was a gin shop. And most of these gin shops had special steps to help even the tiniest children reach the counter. You see, East London in the 1860s was a place that was just rife with theft and burglary and uh, immense poverty and prostitution and alcoholism and all the things that kind of ruled society that the upper crust of society kind of wanted to turn their eyes away from. And William Booth and his wife Catherine began to notice this contrast between what they saw in the church on Sunday mornings and what they saw in the neighborhood. And what they saw in the neighborhood wasn't represented in the church and what they saw and what they hoped for in the church wasn't making its way into the neighborhood. And so William Booth said, you know what? If, uh, if these folks aren't gonna come to church or if the church won't welcome them, we're just gonna take the message of Jesus to them. And so William Booth started preaching on the street corners in East London in the 1860s. He started sharing the gospel and it was wildly unpopular in his day to do such a thing. And many of the uh, kind of the religious establishment didn't know what to do with this guy. And he actually received a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance. People would come out and heckle him while he was preaching and they would throw things at him. At one point, he even hired a professional boxer to stand beside him because he knew that if that guy was standing next to him, nobody would throw eggs at him. And so that was his way to kind of get through a sermon and not get harassed. And then in 1865, 
Somebody came to William Booth and they said, hey, we want to hold a tent meeting. In other words, we're going to set up a tent and provide a space for you to preach the gospel to those on the streets that want to hear it. So July 5th, 1865, he had this opportunity to start this tent meeting, and it continued beyond July 5th into July 6th into July 7th. By July 8th, 600 different people had given their lives to Jesus. And this thing kept going and kept going. Eventually, they had to move out of the tent they were meeting in, and they started meeting in a warehouse. And it started being this weekly gathering that every Sunday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., people knew they could come to this warehouse, and that William Booth would proclaim the gospel, and that all types of people were welcome, and that they could hear the good news of Jesus. And uh, after 10 years of doing this every Sunday, they had over a 1,000 volunteers and uh, volunteer evangelists, the majority of whom were formerly beggars, formerly thieves, gamblers, or prostitutes. And in 1878, 13 years after what they called the East London Christian Mission, after it started, Booth was reading over the annual report that one of his volunteers had written, and he noticed that one writer had referred to the Christian Mission as a volunteer army, and something grabbed his imagination. He grabbed his pen, he scratched out the word volunteer, and he wrote salvation, and thus the Salvation Army was born. And all of us have heard of the Salvation Army. Like we see the Salvation Army every Christmas, right? You see them outside of every store ringing a bell because they're still known to be this people group who are actively working to try to raise resources for the poor all around the world. They're in hundreds of nations around our world trying to work on behalf of the poor. And this whole movement was begun because an ordinary person, two ordinary people, William and Catherine, decided that they would make a decision that would cut against the grain of what was considered to be normal. And here's what I love. When you look at the history of the church of Jesus, you find account after account after account of ordinary people who have this courage to make a decision that seems abnormal in the eyes of everyone around them. And as we've been reading through the book of Acts, over and over again, what we're seeing is ordinary people whose lives are being leveraged for something bigger than themselves. And so if you're new to this uh, series, you know, we've been reading through the book of Acts since uh, back in March. And what we've decided is, you know, the book of Acts kind of tells the story of the, uh, of the church, the history of how the church got started after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it tells us how this movement spread from just a few hundred people to cover the entire Roman Empire in just a couple hundred years. This phenomenal growth. And what we've said is, hey, if we want to understand our destiny as the church, then we've got to understand our history and where we come from. And in Acts 19, we're going to see just another story of where some ordinary people made some radical decisions that cut against the grain. So let's read together. We're going to start in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And I'll tell you right off the bat, you're going to hear this name, Apollos. I know last week we were in Acts 17. Acts 18, this guy Apollos gets introduced. Uh, he becomes a real natural evangelist and worker in the church in the early days. And so that's his name uh, kind of popping up there in verse one. So let's read together Acts 19, verse one. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said, no, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He, he told the people to believe in the one that was coming after him, and that is Jesus Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. 
So Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for about three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Listen to verse 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is God's word out of the book of Acts chapter 19. And uh, man, I wanted to take a minute just to, just to think about this last sentence. Verse 10, that for two years, they sat in this little lecture hall, which we'll talk more about here in just a minute. And after those two years, every Jew and Greek in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is like mind-blowing. You know, the city of Ephesus alone was around 250,000 people, quarter of a million people. And the word of the Lord went even beyond this city that Paul was in, and it spread out to the entire province. Now, we don't have much of a grasp of what the province of Asia was in the Roman Empire. So once again, I've got a helpful map that we're going to put up on the screen. Um, uh, and so it, here's what I love. You know, you look at this. This is a modern uh, day uh, Turkey at the top of the screen there, modern day Greece on the left, Mediterranean Sea there in the middle, and kind of that red area where it says Asia. That is the province of Asia. And here's what's really cool. If you were here three weeks ago, we talked about Paul's second missionary journey and he wanted to go into Asia. But you remember, what did the Holy Spirit do? He kept stopping him. Instead, he kind of went around the perimeter of Asia up into the north side where it says Mysia and ended up going to Macedonia. And we said, hey, listen, sometimes when God throws roadblocks up, it's not that he's rejecting you, but he's redirecting you. Paul never could have guessed that six years later, he'd be sitting at Ephesus, the heart of the province of Asia, getting to teach the word of God day in and day out until the entire province comes to hear the word of the Lord. In that two-year period, the church at Colossae, I don't know if you can see Colossae on there, but the church at Colossae was planted. And now we have <clears throat> the letter to Colossians in the New Testament. In that two-year period, the church at Laodicea was planted. And we read about the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. In that two-year period, the church at Hierapolis was planted. And like little just kingdom outposts are popping up all over the province of Asia. And over a million people come to hear the word of the Lord because Paul sits in one place in the city of Ephesus and teaches day in and day out of this lecture hall of Tyrannus. How in the world is that possible? How does that happen? that the word spreads when Paul just sits in one place. And I think some of it is because Paul was willing to make some decisions that cut against the grain of what was considered to be the norm. And so here's, here's what happened. You know, we start at the very beginning of the story, beginning of chapter 19, and before we get to any decisions that Paul is making, we see the key to any time there is um, just unbelievable, remarkable growth of the kingdom. So Paul comes into Ephesus and he meets these disciples and he starts asking them. And the first thing he says is, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why in the world would Paul ask this? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I meet another believer, I don't go, hey, that's cool, you believe Jesus. Did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's like, it's kind of a weird question to throw out. But what we discover is that, Paul discovers that these disciples were not actually disciples of Jesus yet. They were Jewish believers who were actually still disciples of John the Baptist. And you see, Paul was not just interested in understanding that they were spiritual people or that they were culturally religious people. No, Paul wanted to see if they were filled with the Spirit, if they had spiritual life. And so he asked them this question. And what we see here is kind of this key. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it a lot through this series. But man, when you read through the history of the church, 
What you see every time there's this new momentous or remarkable outbreak of the kingdom, it's always prompted by and fueled by who? The Holy Spirit. He's always there. He's such a key and integral part to who the church is. And so Paul meets these disciples in Ephesus. He teaches them about Jesus. He baptizes them. And then he prays that they'd receive the Spirit. And the Spirit graciously is poured out on them and evidenced by the sign of them speaking in tongues and prophesying. But as I read that this week, there was this phrase that stood out to me in that interaction. We said, hey, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Man, I just immediately thought of my story and probably some of your stories. You know, a lot of you may have been in church your whole life, and if you're like me, maybe you grew up in a church tradition where the Holy Spirit was referred to as an it, not not a he. It seemed this mysterious force, and oftentimes he was just relegated to something that happened in the Bible. But this idea of living the power of a spirit-filled life right now seemed elusive and out of touch. And when I heard people talk about having the Holy Spirit, it often left me wondering, I don't know, do I have the Holy Spirit? Now, if that's you, I want to just encourage you for a minute that these disciples that Paul met, they were not yet believers in Jesus. They were still disciples of John, so they did not have the Holy Spirit. If you have put your faith in Jesus, been baptized into Jesus, the promise is that the Holy Spirit lives within you. But I know that so often, when I was younger and before I knew the Spirit, I went through life kind of feeling devoid of the Spirit's power. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you. Man, He is in you. He loves you. And He is the one that fuels any kind of remarkable spiritual growth or anything. And Paul, in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, would say this. He'd say, hey, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Ask the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Ask him for gifts. Jesus says the Lord, the, uh, his Father loves to give gifts. He will give his spirit to anyone who asks. And so I just want to encourage you, like if you're longing to see the remarkable outbreak of God's kingdom in your life, just ask the Lord for more of the Spirit because he's always there fueling the movement of his church. So this is what we see the first thing. How did, how did in two years did this whole province share the word of the Lord? Well, it started because the Holy Spirit was fueling the movement. But the next thing that we see is that Paul is willing to do something a little bit different. He's willing to make some decisions that cut against the grain. And here's what we see Paul do. The first thing Paul does is that he kind of, he chooses to adopt a new strategy as a missionary. Now, this may not feel like that big of a cut against the grain kind of a thing, but I'm just going to tell you, man, if you've ever spent any time around church people, man, you know how much church people hate change. I mean, like changing anything just feels drastic and disastrous. You know, I mean, I, I, when I first started coming to Ethos, uh, I went to open house. I wasn't on staff yet. And I remember sitting in open house and Dave and Brandon were up there talking. One of the things they said is, hey, here at Ethos, everything will change except for the gospel. And that sounded like such a radical version of the church that I'd never encountered before. Because the church of my youth, the church I grew up in, it was like everything was kind of set. And if you wanted to change anything, it took an act of Congress just to make the smallest changes. I mean, we didn't even sit in different pews from Sunday to Sunday. We sat in the same spot week in and week out. And changing anything in the way that we did things on a Sunday felt like this radical shift. But what I love about Paul is that he, in Acts chapter 19, is going to adopt and make a shift and accept a change at the leading of the Spirit to do something different as a missionary. Now, to understand this, we've got to back up in the story a little bit to kind of see what I'm talking about. So last week, Dave was teaching us out of Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul finds himself in Athens. And while he's in Athens, you remember he's looking at all the idols that are all around the city, and Paul gets this invitation 
And it was like the supreme invitation to come and share his ideas at the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was like the center of philosophical thinking and ideas. If you had an idea you wanted to share, the Areopagus is where you wanted to go. If you wanted to hear of new ideas, the Areopagus was where you wanted to go. It's where anybody who was anybody that had something to share would go and speak. And Paul gets this invitation, hey, come share your ideas with us. It was the ultimate platform for any kind of speaker. So Paul comes in and he declares the wonders of the Lord Jesus there at the Areopagus. It's this brilliant moment that many people tout as his greatest missionary success. And yet what's interesting is that when you get to the end of Acts chapter 17, there's just a few people that are named that become followers of Jesus. Somebody named Dionysius and someone named Damaris. And that's all we hear about in Athens. And then you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you never hear about the church in Athens, you never hear about people in Athens. It was like, that was it. And so Paul leaves Athens. And in chapter 18, he goes to this city called Corinth and he kind of does the same thing. He goes to the center of where religious and spiritual thought would have been practiced, the synagogue. And he begins to reason with the believers in synagogue, thinking that he has this platform to share, but they reject him and they push him away. And he finds himself having to settle for sitting in a guy's living room, sharing the good news of Jesus. I want you to imagine that shift. Imagine that shift. You've been standing on the ultimate platform to share everything that you want to share, and then suddenly you find yourself sitting on some dude's couch. Look in 1 Corinthians, I mean, look in Acts chapter 18 and verse 7. I'll have this on the screen. This is in Corinth. It says, then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And look what happens. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Didn't happen at the synagogue, didn't happen in the Areopagus, happened sitting in Titius' living room. And then verse nine, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So Paul makes this subtle shift where now he's staying in Corinth for a long period of time, teaching from a guy's house. And the church in Corinth begins to thrive. Now you fast forward to chapter 19. Paul has left Corinth. He's traveled back to Jerusalem and he comes back to Ephesus. And he kind of takes the same strategy at first. He goes to the synagogue. He, he teaches and he reasons there for three months, but then they reject him. And what does he do? He rents out this little lecture hall that belonged to a guy named Tyrannus, whom we know nothing about. We don't know anything about the lecture hall. It was not a prominent place in the city as far as we know. And Paul settles there for two years. And here's what we see Paul doing. Here's where it cuts against the grain is that Paul, in shifting his missionary strategy, he moves from a broadcast strategy to what I would call a steadfast strategy. Now, now, here's the broadcast strategy, and this is something that as Americans in 2019, we're all too familiar with. The broadcast strategy says something like this. Hey, if you wanna get your ideas out there, if you wanna get your face or your name out there, then man, you seek the platform that will give you the most exposure to the most number of people in one fell swoop, make the biggest splash that you can possibly make, and that is how you will begin to make a difference in the world. Man, our culture is rife with this kind of thinking, right? It's like you think about uh, the, the, this whole phenomenon of YouTube celebrities and YouTube sensations. It's like anybody can get their ideas out for anybody to get their eyes on. 
It doesn't matter who you are or what you're interested in. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or a stay-at-home mom who wants to share ideas for how to structure your day with your kids or if you're a homesteader or if you're a video gamer. If you want to get your ideas out there and your name out there, man, you can broadcast it for the entire world to see and make a name for yourself. This is the broadcast strategy. It's the one that our culture mostly adopts when it thinks of how do you make a difference. I just got to get a website. I just got to get my name out there. I just got to get as many people to see. But what happens with the Apostle Paul is he makes this subtle shift where no longer is it just about broadcasting at the biggest platform possible. But no, it's while he's sitting in a living room in Corinth that the Holy Spirit says, hey, this is where I want you. Right here, these people that are around you, invest in them. Focus on them. Practice the steadfast pursuit of encouraging and loving and being present with them right here, right now. And for two years, day in and day out, Paul met in the lecture hall of Tyrannus with this little group of disciples that we know nothing about. And he just taught the story of God with steadfast patience and perseverance. And that fueled by the spirit changed an entire province by the power of the name of Jesus. You see, Paul didn't just shift from broadcast to steadfast. Paul also made this shift that cut against the grain a little bit and that he, he shifted from a debate to discussion. Now, here's what you notice in the story is that Paul goes to the synagogue and it says he argued persuasively. In other words, he was there and he was trying to speak boldly for the cause of Jesus, but something happens the moment the debate or the conversation turned toxic. Paul opted for something different. See, what it says is that some of those in the synagogue became obstinate and they began to malign the way. Now, I didn't really know what malign went because I'm not very smart, so I had to go look it up. Malign basically just means to like gossip or slander or to publicly speak ill of. And so these people in the synagogue began to speak ill or gossip or slander, not just Paul, but the way. The way was the way they referred to the church in the first century. Because remember, the church is not an institution. It was a movement. It is a movement. So they began to speak ill of the way of the way of Jesus. And so Paul has this moment. He has this choice he can make. He can see the dirt being flung at him and he can respond likewise and fling dirt back. But that's not what he does. He opts for something different. I love this. John Chrysostom, who's one of the early church fathers in the 300s AD, he comments on this text with the Apostle Paul. He kind of notices this idea that, that Paul chose to withdraw from the synagogue and take his, takes his disciples with him. Here's what he says. He said, Paul put a stop to their evil speaking. He did this by withdrawing. Listen to this. Since he did not wish to kindle their envy or lead them to greater strife. He says, from this, let us learn to not meet, uh, not to meet the evil speaking person, but to withdraw from them. He did not speak evil though he himself was spoken ill of. I love this idea that Paul's response is to withdraw himself. It wasn't that Paul was quitting. It's that Paul said, you know, it's okay. If you don't want this, I'll go and find where the soil is softer, where the message is received. Because he did not want to kindle their envy. He didn't want to provoke them to more. He didn't want to make it more toxic. And so Paul, instead of flinging dirt back, he took the high road and he chose discussion over toxic debate. Now, this is, this is so relevant for our culture. I mean, here's the thing, I love a good debate. <laughs> I might love a good debate a little bit too much. You know, I have very strong opinions, and man, when I was in high school, uh, I wasn't 
quite as tactful as I am now, and uh, I love to voice my opinions. And I'll just go and tell you, man, I was that Christian guy in high school that you all hated. I'm sorry, I repent. I'm not like that anymore. But man, I was very quick to share all of my opinions, every single one of them, as loudly as I could. In 11th and 12th grade, I had an English teacher who loved to stir up debate in his classroom. I look back on it, it's kind of twisted a little bit. He would like bring up these hot topics of the day and try to get us as students talking back and forth about them. And man, it was me and one other really obnoxious Christian dude against everybody else. You know, whatever topic came up, we were just ready to debate. And over the course of two years, my junior and senior year, you know, I, I made a lot of friends because I had some friends on the other side of the aisle who also loved to debate. And so we just loved to get together because we loved to argue. And I also made a lot of enemies. But here's the thing. I didn't make a single follower of Jesus. In two years of debating and trying to push and convince everybody of how wrong they were and how right I was, I didn't see a single person choose to put their faith in the one that I claimed to follow. You see, there's just something about this idea of toxic debate where I'm just trying to prove that I'm right, I'm smarter, I know more, and you're wrong, and I'm pushing you down. It just doesn't work. You know, this was in, you know, I was in high school, this was 1997, 1998. The world's a little bit different now. And debating no longer has to take place face-to-face. It was unhealthy then, but let me tell you about what it looks like now. Now people choose to engage in debate where they can sit behind the anonymity of a phone, they can get on a social media platform at their computer at the safety of their living room and type whatever they want with no repercussion. They don't have to think about how the person on the other end of it feels. They don't have to think about what the other person on the end of it thinks. They don't have to think about what they think of them because they're completely anonymous as they type and send out whatever they want. You know, guys, our, our country is getting ready to enter into a, a, just a, such a divisive season. You know, we have an election coming up and I'm not gonna get political on you, but here's what I wanna ask all of us. Who will we be in the public sphere? Who will you be? See, the example that the Apostle Paul in the early church sets for us is they model the ways of Jesus. You will have ample opportunity, if you choose to, to engage in toxic debate that does nothing to elevate the name of Jesus or the love of Jesus in the life of others. Or we can choose to take the high road and opt in for discussion. Instead, discussion that takes place in the presence of real people face-to-face, even with people that we disagree with. I love this. Paul, you know, he walks away from the synagogue. He goes into the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and day after day, he chooses this steadfast approach of being with unnamed disciples and just spending time with them, teaching them the word of God in discussion style so they see the love of Jesus in his life. And so Paul cuts against the grain. He chooses steadfast over broadcast. He chooses discussion over debate. But you know, Paul wasn't the only one in this story that was making decisions to cut against the grain. There's this group of disciples. There's this group of disciples that that chooses to engage with Paul in this place, and the hunger that we see in them is phenomenal. So here's what we see is the lecture hall of Tyrannus, uh, the book of Acts in the NIV tells us that they met daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. There are some other ancient manuscripts, uh, one called the Western Manuscript of Acts that actually has the time of day that they met. It said they met daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now this seems like kind of a random time in our culture, but in the first century uh, in the Mediterranean, this was sort of been understood 11 to four was this place in the workday where you took a break because it was the day where the sun was the hottest. 
You see, so many of the early followers of Jesus were manual laborers. It's how they made a living. And they didn't have air-conditioned factories or offices to go to. No, they worked out in the heat of day. And so they would get up early and work until 11 a.m. And 11 a.m., they would take a break for five hours. And the purpose of that break was rest, to eat, and to sleep. And then at 4 p.m., they would go back to work and work until the sunset. And that was the normal work day. It was kind of the Mediterranean version of the siesta. And, and, and what you see here in the lecture hall of Tyrannus is that you have these disciples that they're getting up and working in the morning. Paul himself getting up and making tents in the morning, working hard with his hands. And then they have this five-hour break. And how did they choose to leverage it? They choose to leverage it by coming and sitting and listen to the word of God being taught. Now, here's the thing. This was not a thing where they walked in with their Bible and their journal, you know, like, or with their phone ready to like, no, there was no Bible. They didn't have journals to write in or scrolls they could carry with them. All the scrolls were in the synagogue. They would show up and Paul would teach them orally from the Old Testament why Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. He would tell them story after story after story. He took one out of the playbook of his hero, Jesus. You know, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And it says he began to teach them and he opened their minds, helping them see how everything from Moses to the prophets pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. You know, as I, as I think about this kind of hunger, I like I have a hard time fathoming it, where they would give up that one chunk of their day to go and sit and listen to the word of God being taught. Yeah, I'm reminded of these pastors in Uganda. I've been to Uganda four different times uh, over the last several years, and I go to train uh, local pastors. And I'll never forget the first time I went, we were in a very rural uh, village in northern Uganda. And I'm sitting in this little concrete building. It was just hot as blazes, you know. We started at 10 a.m. and around 10.30, we were supposed to start at 10 a.m. Around 10.30, everybody finally starts streaming in. And as I'm watching, like hundreds of men and women start coming into this little concrete building. Some of them are sitting on the floor. Some of them are sitting in chairs. And they would sit there for six hours while I taught them the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. We were there for six days. At the end of the first day, my translator, James, who's one of our church planners in Uganda, he came to me and he said, Aaron, he said, here's what you need to know about these people. He said, most of them are farmers. That's how they earn a living. That's how they feed their families. And they all get up in the morning, they do their farm work, and then some of them walk as far as three miles to come and sit here. And most of them have never had a Bible in their own language. They are hungry for the word of God because they understood the power of the gospel of Jesus. You know, here's the thing that's been hitting me out of this. And this is, uh, you know, there are like fingers pointing back at me. This is not just a slam. I'm, I'm just, I'm reflecting on our culture, guys. Here's the reality is that we live in a culture that has trained us in how we think about our time. You know, we are trained by the culture to go, hey, when I get off of work, that is my time. It's me time. It is mine to do with as I please. And that time is meant to be used for leisure, for indulgence, for entertainment, for consuming, for vegging out, whatever it is, that is my time. I'm at the center of it and I get to do with it what I want. But what I'm blown away by, by our brothers and sisters in the first century in Ephesus is that is not how they viewed their time. They'd work in the morning and then they had this limited space in the middle of their day and they said, I'm not at the center, Jesus is at the center. How will I leverage my time so that I can get caught up in the remarkable movement of God's kingdom that I'm seeing break out around me? 
And they would come and they would sit under teaching. They would pray. And you know, we don't know who they were. <laughs> we don't even know how many there were, at least these 12 at the beginning of the chapter. Some say that there was a fellow named Epaphras that you can read about in the book of Colossians, who was probably a, a tradesman coming from Colossae to Ephesus. And while he's there, he gets invited in to be a part of this little discipleship meeting, ends up going back to Colossae and planting a church. It's like, we don't know how, how often did that happen that people were coming in and out because these disciples chose to take this chunk of their day and give it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, it's phenomenal when a group of Jesus followers, ordinary people like you and me, will choose to make a radical decision that cuts against the grain of what is considered to be the norm. You see, our story is meant to be a story where Jesus sits at the center, not ourselves. You see, Jesus never leveraged his time for his own glory. Everywhere he went, Jesus was leveraging his time for the sake of those around him, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the wealthy, for the sake of the hungry, for the sake of the well-fed, for the sake of the sick, for the sake of the healthy. Everywhere Jesus went, he was constantly leveraging all that he had so that they would know, so that we would know that there's a God in heaven who loves us immensely, and he sent his own son to die for us. And as disciples of Jesus, the invitation is for us to do the same. You know, you are constantly going to be fed a message by the culture around us that says, hey, it's your time. Do with it what you want. Most of the time, that message is coming from some marketer who's trying to sell you something for you to use on your leisurely time so they can make a profit off of it. That's why that message is so rampant all around us. And Jesus says, I have something different for you. You see, this invitation for us as followers of Jesus is will we make a decision that cuts against the grain? You were made for something remarkable. Each of you, each of us, we were made for something remarkable. Now, don't hear what the culture would have you hear. If you say that in our culture, what they say is, yeah, you were made to be heard, to be seen, to be popular, to be known, to have a platform. That's not what I'm saying. But you were made for something remarkable, but it may be something remarkable that nobody else ever hears about except for the one person that you choose to steadfastly invest in day after day after day. You were made to make a difference in somebody's life for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's what you were made for. You are remarkable. But it's not always gonna come in the form of broadcast. No, but it will come if we as Followers of Jesus say, hey, I will be steadfast in living out the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. What if every single one of us said, hey, for the next year, I'm going to pick one or two people, and I'm just going to pour myself out on their behalf to encourage them, to pray for them, to call out in them what God sees in them? Can you imagine the difference that we would make in them? What if each one of us over the next year decided, hey, I'm not gonna go where the toxicity is and engage in every kind of hurtful and hateful kind of dialogue that happens online or interpersonally and said, I said, no, I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna discuss in a loving manner. What if every single one of us said, hey, I'm gonna begin to leverage my me time for Jesus time so that I can be shaped into his image for the advancement of his kingdom in our city and in the world. If we would do that, and we would understand that we are fueled by the Holy Spirit, I promise we will see a remarkable move of the kingdom of God right here in our city. You know, three weeks ago, I had this privilege and the honor 
of getting to, to play a part in my 97-year-old grandmother's funeral and her graveside uh, ceremony. You know, none of you have ever heard of my grandmother. If I told you her name, you wouldn't know who she was unless I used her name, Meemaw, because some of you might have a Meemaw, but this was my Meemaw. But if I told you her name, Carrie Lee Etheridge, most of you, you've never heard of her. You don't know anything about her. But I got to sit at her funeral and hear person after person after person talk about the difference she made because she was not the norm. She chose to live her life as a servant for others. And then I heard this story that in 1953, long before I was ever even thought of, when my dad was two years old, three years old, and my uncle was one, my grandmother made this choice that she was not going to raise two boys who did not know God. And so her family was not a church-going family at the time, but she convinced her husband they were going to go to church. And so they start going to church, and she hears the gospel of Jesus, and she gave her life to Jesus in baptism. And then her husband followed after her, and then both of her sons followed after her, and she raised her sons to know the Lord. And then her oldest son, my dad, raised me to know and to fear the Lord. And now I'm getting to live my life where every single Sunday I get to stand up in front of hundreds and proclaim the good news of Jesus. But nobody would have ever known that she made these choices that cut against the grain. She was the most self-denying, humble woman I've ever met. And she lived a remarkable life. You were made for something remarkable. And you can make a difference, but it will require that we make choices that cut against the grain of the norm in our culture. Now, you know, I, I want to wrap us up and kind of talk about application for this. And, you know, I know that there are some of you sitting in here tonight that, that are not yet followers of Jesus, or you're trying to figure out faith in Jesus. And I know most of this message is kind of geared towards those who've given their life to Jesus. And I've been asking the Lord, you know, are we like, Lord, what do you want to say to those who are in the room that don't yet know Jesus? And I felt like what he was saying to me was this. He, he just wants you to know, if you're sitting here tonight and you're trying to figure out, hey, do I want to follow Jesus? He wants you to know that, man, he went against the grain in every single way. He laid down his life. He embraced suffering, sorrow, and death so that you could know, so that you could know how much the creator of the universe loves you, longs for you, adores you, and he invites you into a relationship with him to know him. And if you don't know Jesus and you want to know him, man, there are any number of us in this room that would love to introduce you to him. In fact, there'll be some of us standing at this respond banner after I'm done, and we would love to pray with you, to encourage you, to answer questions because it's the joy of our life to help you see this man who gave it all away so that you could know his father. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I've got a simple question that I want us to wrestle with tonight. We're gonna to go to communion here in a minute. You're gonna get the cup and you're gonna get the bread. This is not just an empty ritual we do every week. It's just a reminder that, hey, Jesus is here. We remember his body that was broken for us, his blood that was poured out for us. And as you commune tonight, as you remember the way of life that Jesus embraced that cut against the grain of culture, I want us just to ask a simple question. What is one way that Jesus might be inviting you to go against the grain for the good of those around you and for the sake of his name? And I'll have this question up on the screen, and I'm going to pray for us. Don't just go to the table of grace, get the cup, get the bread, and spend some time talking, reflecting, and praying and asking the Lord to show you and to lead you. Lord, I love you. I'm grateful for the, the God that you are, the Lord that you are. Jesus, I'm grateful for the man that you are, for the humility that you have modeled and postured for us. Lord, will you help us? Help us, Lord. Give us courage 
to embrace a steadfast life of loving others in the normal, in the mundane, in the ordinary, everyday life. Lord, empower us to be humble. Lord, will you show us what are the places where you're inviting us to make some different decisions so that the world may know, so that our friends may know and our family may know and our coworkers may know that you are a God of love. We love you, Lord. Send us now in the name of Jesus.